podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This is the Armchair Cricket Podcast. Hello all, welcome to another episode of Armchair Cricket Podcast, a podcast focusing on test cricket by Armchair Critics of the Game. I'm your host, Ajit. And today, to help me unpack the four semi-finalists for the Women's World Cup, as well as the ongoing England and West Indies series, I have a special guest, Jack from Pick Cricket. Hi, Jack. Welcome to the Armchair Cricket Podcast. Hi, Ajit. How are you? I'm doing good. Well, before we begin, why Pick Cricket? Uh, so it's it's a very simple, really, I suppose. Obviously, cricket cricket account, and um, I just very big fan of pigs, to be honest, as an animal. And I just thought it was something that would catch attention, basically, when you're kind of setting up your Twitter and you've got about four followers. I thought, you know, it might just be something that people think, what's that, and have a little look. So that's the kind of the general the general thought process. Interesting. Uh, who knows? Um, there may be cricket teams out there who may have pigs or boars as their uh, symbols as well. Yeah, boar or pig, you know, it's sometimes a very, uh, very good animal to have as a, as your own symbol. So I thought it might be something like that. Let's begin with how you got interested in cricket. So uh, I know you are you are an Englishman, but still, uh, what brought about the interest in cricket for you? Yeah, so actually, my um, my family aren't particularly cricket fans overall. So I didn't really come to it that early. But um, one of my dad's friends kind of invited us to cricket one day at Lords when I was probably about eight or nine. Uh, and just kind of really enjoyed it. Joined my local, joined my local club uh, as an under eleven. Played there for a bit. Really low standard. I'm a I'm not much of a cricketer. Very junk left arm spinner. And then kind of always just enjoyed looking at scorecards, etc. And in the last couple of years, kind of got more into actually looking at it in depth, uh, looking quite a lot of the T20 leagues, etc. And yeah, just kind of enjoy looking over cards and looking at the numbers a little bit. And of course, just watching a good game. Now, I'm more also interested in your uh, the writing part of your career. So, how come uh, you chose to uh, write about IPL and other other things? So, what is your favorite uh, topic to cover as a cricket writer? Yeah, so I, I kind of got into the writing because I wanted something a bit of a hobby to get away from um, yeah, my sort of day job, etc. And thanks to on the side. Uh, in terms of writing about stuff, I tend to write mostly about T20. Uh, largely because I think there's reason why data you can get hold of. Uh, and I kind of it makes sense through the team construction. I think with sort of test match cricket, people who have lots of knowledge of it historically are really good at writing about it. And I sort of thought maybe that's not me. So I think with the T Twenty, something I can kind of um, write some interesting stuff about that people might find yeah, yeah interesting or useful. Very interesting. I think we take a slightly uh, different view on this podcast, but everyone is welcome. So for us, uh, test match cricket uh, has the depth. And uh, even sometimes, you know, there's this almost like a boxing bout sort of a build-up that goes on. Every session is like a, a round in a boxing match. But nonetheless, um, of course, T20 brings its own, uh, you know, its own advantages, its own attractiveness. So let's uh, get into the uh, games at hand. So first of all, let's discuss the ongoing England and West Indies uh, test. Have you been following this? Yeah, I've been following it. It's been um, it's been an absolutely insane match, hasn't it? <laughs> You know, no one in the top seven for either side really seems to be able to, um, to bat any time. And then the tail were coming in and and just scoring the runs. I mean, 
for England, it really was a very, very strange innings. That person innings, you know, bowled out the 204 with, with Leach and Mahmood batting 10 11, getting 40 odd each, especially with Mahmood. I mean, Leach, we have seen actually, you know, apply himself quite well before in test matches. He's got that 90 against Ireland at Lords, opening the batting as a, as a night watchman. But um, Mahmood, I think I really, really did come out of the blue. Absolutely. That was his highest first class score. He just said, I'll not get out. And the pitch and the bowling was not incisive enough. The bowling was not incisive enough. The pitch was not that much spicy. Uh, but for them to apply themselves, look, between them, they have played out what amounts to 40 overs of cricket on the first day. right? So after the, you know, uh, the top order was taken out thanks to some good bowling. And, you know, the pitch is going to support the sort of good bowling and, and the good lengths from fast bowlers. But when you look at... Those two, that was very, that was such an uh, instructive thing. If you're a batsman on both sides, right? If you're a top order batsman, look at what they did. They would not play anything injudicious. Forget about the run rate. And they just kept going until eventually you get your eye in, right? And then you can hit. And Mahmood got off a few big shots. But Jack Leach went, went on in his steady way, strike rate of around 30, no, no, no pressure. I really loved what they did. But what they gave England was a real chance Whereby on a on a slightly spicy pitch, you had you had something that you could bowl at, right? And then so first of all, Kimar Roach, Jaden Seals did all the damage up top, and Kyle Mayers. I thought that spell of his five overs, five maidens, two wickets, right? That that was so incisive just before lunch on day one already, where he took out Joe Root and Zach Crawley. So that's where sort of it all started. But then Chris Walks did a bit of damage control. And then Craig Overton helped him there. I think that was also a very crucial period for England in the first innings. 204 you would take on that pitch if you are bowling first. If you chose to bowl first on a slightly spicy pitch. And West Indies knew what they were getting into, right? But their top order also could not do much. At least John Campbell hung around. Craig Brathwaite, usually in these conditions, is a big player. He's somebody who can hold one end up and let the stroke makers around him go. Shamar Brooks, a slightly fallow sort of a series. I expected he would uh, he would contribute. He would get one beginnings. And Kruma Bonner, well, he had one really good test, right? But, but then not a lot since. But that can happen. And then there were some some strange dismissals. I think it was Bonner who tried to duck a bouncer and uh, let, let the ball... Uh, Nick the bat that was like I held up like a periscope. Jason Holder uh, again a very fallow series with the bat. You expect a bit more from him. He's at number six and a very crucial role in this Western Indian West Indian eleven because you have some stroke makers around him. Jermaine Blackwood is a stroke maker. Kyle Myers is a stroke maker. So you needed somebody like Holder to sort of uh, stay at one end. He has the experience. He has a Test match double hundred. Uh, but again, Kyle Myers a very crucial twenty eight. That sort of repair job where he took the sting out when England were really rampant. Chris Fawkes sort of, you know, changed changed the way he bowled. He took three middle-order wickets. Stokes was always going to be there or thereabouts, even though he looked a bit injured, huh, Stokes. But then then comes the, again, the old-school batting, the application, where Joshua De Silva is, again, your old-school guy. He's going to just keep the bad balls out and wait until some something is in his scoring range. He's not very you know active when it comes to a lot of stroke play. He has a limited scoring range, but he does that very well. And he showed that. And what stout support. So what I really liked is what Aljari Joseph, Kimar Roach, and even Jaden Seals did. So if you if you look at those three, those four, in fact, just to show England they could do it as well, they played 400 balls between the, those four. Right. And 297, again, a pretty decent total. They were at one point in time uh, in danger of conceding lead to England. 
but then from that point on to actually drag the match well into uh, drag their innings well into the middle of the third day demoralizing land a little bit and bat out all those balls how much of that did you think affected england when they came out to bat for the second time yeah quite a lot i think i mean i think it's a really good point you're making about uh kind of both mayers in this innings and then wokes and over in the first innings making these sort of crucial 20s and 30s just to stop the momentum england and west indies are both sides that are not great test scene teams and i think they let the game meander when they kind of lose momentum so beyond like take the momentum out of them they suddenly look a little bit they can look very flat very quickly um and yeah i think england when they came out to bat they looked a little bit um shell shocked i think i mean Like you say, 400 balls. So I mean, Grant concede to the bottom four, or sorry, to bolt the bottom four is insane. I mean, admittedly, obviously, De Silva is not really a number eight. Um, no. He's just there for it's a weird quirk of the West Indies, the West Indies team construction. Uh, and to be fair, I mean, Joseph has always been a good stroke maker, but hasn't really applied himself. And Roach, I remember um, Michael Holding actually saying that he, when he saw Roach back as a youngster, thought he'd be a decent kind of test number eight. And he's so there is something there, but again, it's just completely. Uh, mad to 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 bowl that many overs at your bottom four of the other team, and like you say, when they came out to bat, they looked all at sea. I mean, barring barring Lee's, who always just going to you know, hunker down and rattle in and just kind of face no balls he can. That, that's just that's how he goes in county cricket. He plays up at Durham, where the pitch is, is unplayable at times, um, and you've really just got to kind of stick it out. And then apart from that, you know, the Sydney's just ran through England, really, didn't they? Um, it's looking very very. A very, very poor position for them going into the next day. At least some of the dismissals left a lot to be desired. I think Joe Root chased a very wide one, and uh, he looked a little bit short mentally. I think he's coming to an end of a long uh, Test match uh, period uh, through the Ashes and this tour, and he himself looked like he didn't want to be there when he came out to bat. And his body language was not very positive. You know, the Root, the bubbly Root, that looks to be there is has a smile on his face, right? And you can see that Root was missing, and he nicked one that was wide. Again, Myers getting him, but I thought again uh, the first uh, first spell from Seals, Jaden Seals was very very good. He took Jack Crawley out, but then the pressure that was applied right at the top with the new ball, you know, Kemar Roach again very very underrated in this innings. He's considered one run and over and at eight over spell. I think it was across two spells, but very very incisive in, in as much that the, there were no bad balls offered. Even after those two got replaced, Myers came in and same sort of approach. no bad balls to hit just back of a good length where you are you can neither be comfortably back or front uh, and then the ball always did enough because the pitch has that spice in it the ball is sort of either deviating off the straight or sometimes ducking in ducking sometimes it's going to also stay low i think the ball that bowled johnny perstow uh, wasn't it no the the ball that actually he nicked to the, the, the keeper didn't really rise up all the all that much he was actually going for an ugly hike must be said but the ball didn't rise at all off the length and he nicked one to the keeper so there again west indies must be given credit where england tried to replicate their own uh, approach west indian approach where uh, alex lees and johnny bersto took some time out of the game right at 4 for 39 in just the 17th over it could have gone any which way and you were still comfortably behind right you were still 50 plus runs behind and it could have gone really really all pear shape but johnny bersto very un- uncharacteristically just stood there Uh, he's denied himself almost you could see that he was frustrated but he was just looking to stay but then eventually it didn't it didn't work because this guy is always a little bit more free flowing he scores likes to score with a strike rate of 40 or 50 even in tests and he likes to 
go for strokes but on this pitch you required that kind of patience to just stay there and actually bat out time so this is an actually a very good pitch it 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 goes a little bit towards the bowlers but the batsmen have to show the application the west indian team showed us that right and then not a lot i can say about overton and um, folks as well well look there were three strange dismissals in that innings one guy let the ball go and was bowled other guy tried to let the ball go ben stokes and nicked one behind and the third guy was run out hesitating a run you know this is a this is what school boy 11 under 11 under 13 stuff is made of you expect an international team that is that is probably batting for the series right there because the first two tests have been drawn you are in the third test and this is the third innings is always the moving innings of the test and you are playing the third innings unfortunately the the application that we saw from england was a bit lacking yeah definitely um it was a very strange innings i think it kind of reflects on the sort of team england are i mean in the sense sort of, sort of batting like they are in a sense obviously okay, one of the traits of their batting is that they don't have they don't have outside of root and stokes particularly strong players um Yeah, these aren't players you would expect to average 40 in test matches reasonably based on their first class record. Um, but also, it kind of, I think, is a reflection of the sort of team England are and why they struggle in these situations. I mean, England, when they go behind in a test match the last two years, they just collapse. I mean, when they're up and, you know, Root and, say, Root and Lawrence are batting together, it can all look very free-flowing, it can look very good, etc. Or when Stokes is hammering it. Um, but when they get behind in a game, because their players are naturally aggressive, I mean, if you look at their side, They've got sort of five in a row that haven't made Crawley, Root, Lawrence, Stokes, Bairstow are all stroke makers, realistically. Um, I think when they have to really hunker down, they can get a bit confused. So, for instance, you know, Lawrence leaving it onto his stumps. Lawrence plays for my county, Essex. And for Essex, he goes out there and he plays a shot at everything, basically. Um, he's selective to some extent, but like he's a front foot player. And I just think that it doesn't really have necessarily the game for this kind of defensive dug in innings. And you see that in that, you know, that badly where. You kind of get a bit confused. I think. I think that is what England are when it gets tough. They're not the sort of sides for a tough situation, particularly with the bat. Unfortunately, I think it's also the mental aspect where they're, as you say, they've already packed their bags and they have one foot on the plane home. Potentially, that's why they are not really. At least, most part of the squad will not play the limited overs leg of the uh, tour. So they are sort of their heads switched off potentially. so but that's one thing but in any case i'm just thinking lot of hundreds and lot of big scores were actually made by the same people with all the names you took uh, it was just required that one of them had to come good and in the top 3 or top 4 and then show to the rest of the 11 look this is it right and then everybody else would usually england is a team that does what west indies did like you have a sting in the tail and you have somebody holding on doing some damage control and then everybody batting around him in this case it was west indies and a lot of uh, credit to kyle myers looks like this guy has this special special uh, ability to win a test match all on his own with the bat or the ball he we remember that incredible double hundred fourth innings double hundred in a very tough chase in bangladesh he didn't do much in sri lanka nothing to write home about 13 for 2 in the first innings 5 for 9 in the second innings he simply won the game with his bowling skills and to add to that that crucial 28 which sort of was between two periods where it could all have been very bad for west indies again this is the guy this is the sort of guy you would like to back he might not be very consistent but maybe one test in a series he gives you this sort of a performance where he'll just take it away right west indies have always had these sort of high impact players 
they need people like you have bonner there and to a large extent shamar brooks people who are more settled in their mindset and they will they are the people around whom these uh, impactful players can perform that's where i actually expect jason holder to stand up former skipper double hundred in tests a proper all rounder batting at number 6 but all in all at least the way west indies have performed in the series i give them a lot of credit it was for first two tests they had to bat fourth and they had to defend and sort of play for a draw they did that now in the moving test they have gotten all the action in they are actually making all the strides and uh, if they win the series which i don't expect any other result frankly at 10 for 8 england you do not expect any miracles in, at this stage and you know leech and uh, mahmud may have done something in the first innings i don't expect them to repeat their heroics No, very true. I mean, like you say, they listen. These they've earned this, haven't they? They say when they've been down in the other games, they've got their draws. They battled the days out. They played sensible Test cricket. And of course, you know, winning a Test series is not about how many sessions you win; it's about how many games you win. And it's you know, it, it's absolutely no no sign of a bad team at all to be down for basic for large periods of the game and get a draw. It's actually probably the sign of, of a good team. But when they're when they're down, they just kill the game off, draw it out, and then when they get on top, they Yeah, for lack of expression, fair expression, they put the foot in the throat. And that's what they've done with England here. They've got up, they've got up on England, and where England, when they've been in good positions in previous tests, haven't been able to be clinical and put the West Indies under pressure. When it's been flipped round, the West Indies have England under a lot of pressure, and England have just capitulated like they they always do when they're under a bit of pressure in a test match. Absolutely. Um, and they're going to, like you say, they're going to lose the series um, on nil, and they might they might think themselves a bit unlucky, but. Honest, they haven't been because they haven't taken the key moments in the series to actually go and win it. Yeah, I, I would say if that West Indies win the series, they are the deserved winners. They won all the key moments, right? You absolutely rightly said. All right, now let's go on to the other test that was played. It was the decisive test as well between Australia and Pakistan, played in Pakistan in Lahore. So after a very very long time, a big team goes and plays test series in Pakistan, and well. Uh, it was unfortunate for pakistan that having competed really well for 14 out of the 15 days in this series on the last day of the series they again fell short probably mentally i would say because you know pat comes declaring with 351 as a target people said this is a very sportive declaration and pakistan in fact almost proved them right 73 for no loss at the end of fourth day giving themselves some 270 odd runs to be scored on the last day with all 10 wickets in hand whereas you had enough batsmen in good form right all their top four or five were in good form except fawad alam probably everybody had made good runs in the series so it was actually sort of alarm bell situation for australia but again you never write australia off you know on that last day out comes uh, green that was a sort of a strange move to start off with green because it was a slightly older ball the ball had just begun reversing and patrick came in sensing that this is the best operator gave him the ball and he took out abdullah shafiq right in the very first few overs a very critical guy for this sort of a chase you needed one guy to hang on so that the rest of the batsmen could score around around him and make the runs because you are expected to go at 3 and over over 90 over so that's not going to be easy so you needed one guy who would make 80 90 not out and they stay for two sessions i was thinking would be abdullah shafiq i did not back imamul haq to do that but imamul haq took over azhar ali was worked out beautifully by leon there's a little bit of controversy about the way he was dismissed azhar ali did not look comfortable at all i think he thought he did not hit it he did not nick it but well there was such a small grace even on the when the drs was used 
right on the snickometer but he was given out based on that and then babar azam hung in there right so again between these two at 2 for 142 pakistan had built up that beautiful platform from where well if they pressed the accelerator and got a few runs quickly they could go for the chase on the other hand if they lost a wicket they could shut shop and just go for a draw so it was all set up beautifully then right at that point again intervenes leon i mean he's been so beautiful right through the series i thought he bowled very well with with a little bit more luck he would have gotten a lot more wickets i thought but in this innings the most crucial innings he stands up for his team he takes a five out so he takes out all the big batsmen he's taken out imamul haq azhar ali and eventually also babar azam right but you have this two very very strong fast bowlers who are just waiting from the other side right attacking fast bowlers so you have kamins who comes in and takes the middle order out and stark along with him from the other side so you have fawad alam who was struggling but he was worked out mohammad rizwan i thought look that was probably a mistake did you follow this test last day closely um yeah i didn't for um too close to the tv cuz i was quite busy just keeping the score cards kind of uh, cutting it out with with work but um yeah that was going quite well for for pakistan but in the end they just fell a bit short didn't they i think they they were they were hampered by having five bowlers essentially in this game um i think sometimes you can think well if i've got five number or oh, sorry three number 8 then that's the same as having a number 7 but it often isn't because if the task is difficult there's that you know qualitative gap between someone who can bat at the top 7 and actually take up time and you kind of three number 8 so if you actually look at their top 4 Yeah, they face a lot of balls and score quite a lot of runs. It's morally just, I think, the shortage of 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 batters in their side, really, and obviously some very good bowling from um, Lyon and Cummings. Lyon's a bit of a strange one because he has basically he has one ball, and it's a very good ball, but he hasn't got a huge amount of options. So sometimes you can look at him when he's not taking wickets, and it just feels like he's bowling the same thing over and over again. It looks very easy, but when it looks threatening, then he's bowling that same threatening ball over and over again. So um, I think he's a uh, Yeah, a, a very good bowler that perhaps has been a bit out of form recently, but it was inevitable that one day he was going to rip through a team. And unfortunately for Pakistan, it was it was, it was then that got the end of it. Look, he has 400 plus Test wickets, and he's earned it by bowling and building that skill set. Bowling dry or long periods if required, playing with the lengths, you know, as they say, holding the ball on a string so that it, he can get it to pitch where he wants exactly. Even on this pitch, I thought he found the right lengths for the last day. But he knows he has. these two very very effective fast bowlers who can use the reverse swinging ball very well and mitchell stark you know on his day which he did in the second test actually he nearly did it where the first innings of the second test of pakistan's batting he they ran through pakistan again in the third test they just ran through pakistan's batting in the first uh, innings in such a way that they set up the match for australia so you have these two who would give you that incisive four five over spell cummins can probably also bowl long but at least stark you have him where he'll come when the ball is reverse swinging he bowls 150 it's it's not something easy to you know negotiate if you are new to the crease so fantastic fantastic uh, that that effort overall effort everybody bowled everybody contributed so you had uh, lion stepping up when needed cummins making those incisive breakthroughs stark in the first innings green who bowled dry and who would give you that one or two crucial breakthroughs for mitchell swepson i think it was just a learning tour from what i saw he can he can grow to be something very good for australia in tests at least until lion is there he's going to be the premier spinner and in australia in most tests you would have only one spinner that's enough you are absolutely right what cost pakistan is the fact that they had to go with two spinners neither of whom could bat too much 
or Sajid Khan is supposed to be able to bat, but he couldn't do much. On the last day, he did show a small glimpse of what he can do. But you required him to do this for a longer period of time, right? And what you said, three number eights. Hassan Ali, again, sort of a very uh, limited series, both with the ball and bat. The way he got out was not particularly you know, heartening if you're sitting in the dressing room and you're trying to save a test, right? These sort of miracles do happen where number eight, number nine, along with a full set batter. So he had Baba Razam on the other end. You would just bat through. But then, well, it, it, it really didn't work. The moment Baba Razam got out, you saw the writing was on the wall. Australia would run through the rest of the order, maybe a few runs here and there. And that's exactly what happened. So very well played Australia. They've actually learned from the way cricket is played in Pakistan. Going is actually quite slow in the first couple of days, but then it picks up pace. They have learned it. They showed how it's done in the first two tests. In the third test, they waited for the right time and they struck. Very well played and a lot of kudos to also the captaincy and of Pat Cummins. I thought he changed his bowlers perfectly and he made sure that uh, you know nobody bowled long and sort of got injured. Everything sort of came together well on that last day. So they fully deserve that uh, series uh, victory. Yeah, I very much agree. I mean, yeah, Sajid, when he was batting with Baba, Baba against Lyon, you can really see that difference between a batter and a, and a kind of guy that can bat a bit in terms of just how com- comfortable Baba looked against the spin and how kind of jittery um, Sajid did. But yeah, it was a, it was a lot of great timings. He kept in the side very well. Like you say, they're a side that they, they're patient in the wait for moments and they can probably be patient because they're quite good and they back themselves to actually pick the moments correctly and, and nail them. I mean, Cummings in the series was especially in this match, in the series as a whole, was something else. I mean, he's averaged 23 with the ball um, in a series where that dominated enormously. I mean, if you were offered to average 23 with the ball in England in test matches, almost seeming wicket, you'd be happy. And he's really put in an exceptional performance with the ball as captain in this series. Um, and overall, I think, yeah, like you say, Australia have had the better of the series. Um, they, they, they look the more threatening team made that sporting declaration, like you said, um, and then they, they backed it up. Some really good bowling. From the test matches, let's move on to the limited overs cricket. So first, the Women's Cricket World Cup. Well, uh, today is the day when the last two league games were played and the last two semi-finalists were identified. Were you able to catch any of the action at all, Jack? Uh, I caught a little bit before I went to bed last night of being the first game uh, and then a tiny bit this morning, essentially, as I was prepping for this. I know you were saying you managed to catch a bit of India. Yes. So I, I think I managed to catch all of the game except for about 25 hours of South Africa's batting. It was a heartbreak for Indian women. So that was the last game. They had suffered a couple of narrow losses in the series already. So they had to win this one to stay uh, relevant and qualify for the semis. They couldn't do that. So first of all, they batted well. I thought against a strong South African bowling attack, they started really well, the Indian girls. First of all, a 91-run first wicket partnership where Smriti Mandana and Shafali Varma both came good and they scored at a very good strike rate as well, right? So by the 15th over, India were 91. I mean, they lost the first wicket. And then Yastika Bhatia, who's been in good form, uh, could not get going. But Mithali Raj did her bit. Batting at number four, she held fort. She made sure she batted into the 40s, the overs, and also put up a good score. Harman Pritkar and her set up India beautifully. So by the time Mithali Raj was out, in the 43rd over, uh, India had 234, a set, Harman Pritkar, and some strikers of the ball in Pooja Vastrakar, Richa Ghosh, and Snehar Rana to come in. Unfortunately, uh, Harman Pritkar also couldn't carry on too long. She, she 
tried rotating the strike and continuing to score, but she needed some support from the other end. Pooja Vastrakar, Richa Ghosh, Neharana, all of them got out cheaply. And that probably cost India about 20 runs towards the end. So what would be potentially very close to 300 became 274. Still, this was a very, very challenging target because this was going to be the second highest chase for any women's team in a World Cup. Uh, India have already considered the highest chase to Australia just before in the same uh, series. But this one was going to be the second highest. And a lot of lot of strong batters were ready from South Africa, right? So Lizelli, sort of a Scott Napping was run out. Otherwise, her and Laura Wolwart always come up with a strong performance. But Laura Wolwart went on. Her and uh, Lara Goodall uh, put up a strong partnership. And then you saw Sune Luz sort of giving it away. I think they worked her out, the captain. But Mignon Dupree, the former skipper, but also a middle-order Tyro. She was right there. And she was actually scoring slowly. Uh, by the 40th over, she was only scoring at a strike rate of close to 50-55. But then you had Marizan Kaap with her, who was taking care of the strike rate. Kaap was scoring above run a ball. And then you they knew they had Chloe Trion, who can hit a few. right? And Trisha Shetty, who can uh, rotate the strike. And Shabnim Ismail again, who can hit a few. So with this coming, they were sort of set up well. Even though the difference between the runs required and the balls left were about 15, even into the last five overs. I don't think they particularly panicked. Then came these last two sort of crucial overs, I thought, where it was, I think, one, the fast bowler, Pooja Vastrakar, and then the spinner, Rajeshwari Gaikwad, both of whom were targeted. And between those two, I think they considered 22 or 23 in those two overs. And the uh, number of runs required was pulled back. There was also some, some little bit of not good fielding from the Indian women because Minya Dupri was dropped once at long gone. And then when she was dismissed in the last over, it turned out to be a no ball. So can you imagine there are three runs required of two balls? The bowler has overstepped, but she doesn't know it. What Minya Dupri has done is just hit it straight and he's caught at long off. Unfortunately, it turns out to be a no ball. So you get the run extra and the ball back and now it's a free hit. So from that point on, I think they held their nerve and they won off the last ball. So a lot of credit to Minion Dupri who sort of rode her chances, but made sure she was there till the last minute. And she kept upping her strike rate. She was the one who hit those boundaries of the Indian bowlers. Even though Marizan Cap was run out and Chloe Trion, she did her bit, but she gave it away. Minion Dupri uh, took South Africa home. It was a bit of a heartbreak if you're following uh, Indian women's team. But uh, from an English women's team perspective, are you happy they've qualified for the semis? Yeah, very happy for England. I mean, of course, it looked quite, um, looked quite bleak at the start of the, <laughs> the tournament when they lost those three games in a row. Although I think sometimes they're not the best planning side. I think the just quality of their players has essentially shone through towards the end of this group stage. Uh, and the fact they do have a few world-class players in there that can just kind of drag them through, essentially. Yeah, I think in terms of India, I think they... In this game, they're probably a smidge unlucky. Like you say, there's that no ball towards the end. They have those three finishes. None of them came off today, and finishes can not come off. But equally, if you if you get down to one game, you need to win to go through. Obviously, there is always this chance of getting bad luck, and it's kind of the, the price you pay for not having got those wins earlier in the tournament. I think probably they haven't been massively well served by the sort of way they tinkered with their top order and not starting with um, Shafali at the start of the tournament or going away from her, I should say. Yeah, very, very happy that England have gone through, even though it's, um, even though it kind of <laughs> was very, very tight for a while. You know, Eccleston has really pulled it out, especially, to, I mean, especially last night. Eccleston was absolutely uh, spectacular. You know, three for 15 off 10 overs um, against Bangladesh to just really, really um, 
you know, take the life out of the game essentially after England made a kind of reasonable but not well beating two, three, four in the first innings, um, which, you know, not a bad score, but with, no, um, with due respect to Bangladesh, you'd expect England to probably have made a few more than that, I would suggest. Um, the England players, they have, a, you know, they have a lot, they're very professional in the sense of the amount of times they get to give to their cricket, etc., for a number of years. And in the end, they were actually quite lucky to get up there with, you know, Dunkley, you know, 67 or 72, Brunt coming in 24, uh, 22, and then Eccleston having a whack at the end. For a long time, it actually looked like they were going to have a much lower score than that. Um, so whilst, you know, once you look at that, they won by exactly 100 runs, you know, it looks like a very, very easy win. And, you know, it was an easy win, to be honest, in the end. But Bangladesh did have them in a little bit of trouble in that first innings, and they were just tying them down, tying them down. Uh, Beaumont played a, a very peculiar innings, 33 of 69, just kind of didn't really get going. And that is a little bit what England are like, I think. Good players, talented side, but occasionally they just kind of don't commit to the to what they're doing in a sense. Um, they seem like a little bit scared of losing both in their selection and kind of the way they play, which is a bit of a shame because they've got some really, really excited players in their in their lineup. Uh, what do you think about England as long as I I caught the first ten overs, first twelve overs of their uh, innings, and a lot of credit to Jahanar Alam and Salma Khatun the way they began. Tight bowling, tight lines, and I think Tammy Beaumont was tied down. She was not given her favorite strokes through the offside. And Danny White was taken out. That was also like, looked like a planned dismissal. They made her reach out. And then Heather Knight was taken out cheaply. So at the end of, you know, about seven, eight hours, two for 26, it could have gone any way. So even though Tammy Beaumont took her time, probably she knew that there were there were batters below who could sort of up the uh, scoring rate once the sting of the bowling attack was taken, which she did. But also she was backing herself. You know, you do that. You say, as a good batter, as a good striker of the cricket ball, you say, if I've taken 70 balls for 35, if I can hang on and play 100 balls, I'll probably push my runs up to 70, my strike rate up to 70 as well. But she couldn't carry on. I think that's what happened. Nat Siver had the right approach in the middle overs, but I think Amy Jones, she was the one who provided a little bit of momentum and then Sophia Dunkley, who converted it beautifully. And towards the end, you had Catherine Brunt using the long handle. So Catherine Brunt and even Sophie, Sophie Eccleston. I think for me, by the way, Sophie Eccleston has been the tournament's best bowler. Amazing bowling analysis right through. And she looks like you can't get her away. I mean, I've seen her bowl at the death for England. The way they began, probably, as you say, they mismanaged some of the players or maybe some of the roles that were given. There were some strange selections, as you told me, off air. But she was always the one shining star. Even though they had nothing to defend, she would not give any runs. I was really, really impressed by how Sophia Eccleston bowled and at times how Catherine Brunt and Anja Strapsol also backed her near the back end. Nat Siver, you know, can also bowl and she's very good at the death. But I think with her, with Siver and Sophia Eccleston bowling, I think they've pretty much strangled a couple of teams and took a victory. I think to reverse that tough uh, run they were going through where they lost three in a row, I think it was thanks to these two. And then came, again, the team kicking on where they they get the self-belief back. So all in all, I think they deserve the place in the semifinals just for that run where they were able to go through these different uh, troubled periods, something going on in their head, something not working out as they wish. But then they still went through it. This, this, this tournament has the format where you can actually do that. You can come back from dead, right? It's very much similar to the 1982 Cricket World Cup format where Pakistan won it from a similar situation. So the question is... Whom do you see winning the World Cup? Is it is it Australia's to win and then maybe England and South Africa to challenge or do you see something else happening? Because now we are heading into the knockouts. 
Um, I think it's. I mean, I think it's very likely to be Australia. They're just such a good size. I mean, they're one to eleven. Amazing, amazing team. But then they could they could drop their first eleven, bring in another eleven, and it'd still be challenges for the World Cup. I mean, think about oh yeah, Amanda Jade Wellington. <laughs> I mean, Amanda Jade Wellington, yes. um, like a few months ago, was nowhere near the Australian team. She comes into bowl in this tournament. She looks like more one of the best leg spinners in the world. Um, and then they've got Alana King, who's probably one of the other best legs in the world as well. Um, the depth is just obscene. England, I think, are a side that could challenge them simply because they've got those high-end players that can win a game by themselves. So Eccleston, for instance, although she got a bit of tap from Australia in their match in the group stages, she can, on her day, tie down any any lineup. Uh, in a similar way, Siva is one of the better rounders in the world as well. Uh, and I think, to be honest, to be, you're not going to beat Australia sort of woman for woman if you know what I mean a game of sort of small a game of you know role-based contributions Australia are always going to win because they're just better in each role I think the way you're going to beat Australia is Nat Silver walks out and hits a quick hundred or Eccleston runs through them it's going to be one player just catching them I think uh, you're going to beat them and I think England probably have players most likely to produce that kind of star performance to knock a team over I mean, South Africa as well, I suppose. You could have Kappa Ishmael with the ball or Lazelle Lee, you know, teeing off at the back. But I just think England are the side that, you know, you can see a number of players who could just step up on the day and just have a real day out and maybe catch, they catch Australia on a day where they're not quite perfect, beat them. But I think overall, Australia, are, they look... I mean, I've, I don't think I've ever seen a team that looks so much stronger than the rest of the field in basically any sport, to be honest. Frankly, it, it looks like the all-conquering Australian teams of the early 2000s and mid-2000s were... In any one-day tournament, I think they went through two World Cups unbeaten or something. So it looks almost like that. And this, in fact, this Australian women's team is coming off a much better run. I think they lost one ODA in the last 30 or something. So uh, they are really, really in a very good place mentally as well. As you say, person for person, they are much, much more, uh, you know, accomplished. So even if one or the other lets uh, lets their uh, guard down, the other, some other player will stand up. We'll make sure they get the runs or get the wickets, right? So it's really theirs to lose. That's that's the way I would put it. Anything can happen because it's a knockout. And I really hope England or South Africa can do something. England are the defending champions and they've gotten themselves to the semi-final and maybe they can pick themselves up from there and go on and achieve the tournament victory. Now, before we go on to the IPL, which began yesterday, by the way, one word of special word of mention to Bangladesh men's ODI team who've achieved some historic victory. So they won their first ODI, first ever ODI in South Africa. And then they go on to win their first ever ODI series as well. Having won the first ODI, they considered the second one to South Africa, the pink ODI. But in the third one, Taski Nehmat, the fast bowler, who's for a long time looked like the man in waiting, stepped up, led the attack, took a 5-4 on a sporting pitch on a fast bowler's pitch, right? They were able to restrict South Africa to just 154. He had very good support from Shakib Al-Hassan, of course, the experience. Everybody contributed. Every bowler contributed. And South Africa were never let off the leash in that game. Uh, I don't know if you saw the game. Uh, yeah, apologies, yeah. It was um, it was quite a... Yeah, I couldn't could watch a bit of it. It was a really impressive performance for Bangladesh. And to be honest, they've been impressive all series. I think in a lot of ways, they're not actually a dissimilar side to South Africa in the way they set up. Uh, they've got strong bowling there that is kind of um, on, on its day can really restrict the team. And their batters are good batters who are not going to score at, say, 
110 strike rate, then they're going to consistently make runs. Um, as you saw, kind of in the chase there, um, you know, Tamin and Little Das kind of knocking off, knocking off a small total. But yeah, I was really impressed with Taskin Ahmed. I mean, I, when I first kind of saw him, I think when he first came to international cricket, it was kind of one beautiful 88 mile an hour ball followed by a short ball, a full toss, one down the leg side. It was, it was just kind of um, lottery bowling. And you know, there's, <laughs> there is a place for that, I think. And I think. You know, in this in a Bangladesh side that were considerably weaker when he came into the team originally, you take that kind of just <laughs> that, you know, all over the place but aggressive bowling. But I think as they've kind of improved as a side, he's massively improved as a bowler. He looks like he has really good control now. And that he can just kind of hammer out of them. Um, I think plausibly, but in this game here, you know, he's five three, he's not had to he's not opened the bowling here, he's almost been used to the middle over and falls to I think that seems like quite a good role for him. When he has to go searching for swing, perhaps really full or feels like he does, he maybe isn't quite a stronger bowler. But with those two left armers opening up, doing a really good job, and then tasking me to come in the middle and just really try and attack players in a period of the game that a lot of teams, and I think Bangladesh a few years ago, let that middle overs just kind of meander a bit. You know, you have fingers going from each end and you can end up conceding five and over or more without really, really noticing. Um, you know, having a guy who can bowl genuinely quick to come in that middle overs and just keep, you know, keep everything going, keep the game live, uh, I think was very impressive. And, you know, the fact that, you know, they wanted to sign up for the IPL demonstrates that he really is seen as a strong bowler now in one-day cricket. Absolutely. No, I think he stepped up his game quite a lot over the last 12 to 15 months. You can see that. And now the, you have the confirmation on the field where he's led his team to a historic series victory, taking a 5-4. And the way... The Bangladeshi openers responded, I thought they would win for no loss. So they were so strong, they, the back of the chase was broken within the first 10-12 overs. And that's it. There was no looking back from there. So this is an entirely different Bangladesh team. Remember, they won a test match in New Zealand where you know much, much more fancied sides have struggled. So I'm very much looking forward to the test series. Because this South African side is a scrapping side. They're, they're not going to give it up. But with some key fast bowlers missing, playing in the Indian Premier League, you would say maybe this is the time where Bangladesh also has a chance to win a test in South Africa. What, what a, you know, what a tour it would be. I don't care about the result of the series even. I want them to go on and win a test there, right? They have the, they now have the belief. They now have the top order batting and the bowling to do that in foreign conditions, in fast bowling conditions. So I'm really looking forward to the test series. I think now uh, we can switch over to the, White elephant in the room, as I call it, the IPL. The 2022 season started yesterday. The first game uh, between two heavyweights, Chennai and Kolkata. And uh, Chennai lost the game. Did you get a chance to follow this game? Yeah, I watched um, every ball of this game, more or less. Um, wow. It was on a great time in the UK as well. Um, yeah, it was um, a bit of a strange game. Uh, Chennai, obviously, Imashedav. Uh, Shine batted first. Mesh had uh, open bowling for KKR. Hasn't really played a lot of T20 for quite a long time, but with um, on a sort of one KD pitch that was clearly offering a little bit for the seamers, he kind of just reverted almost to test match lengths and just banged out kind of top of offline and was really successful. He removed Dyckwood and Conway, uh, two openers for basically no runs and was looking really strong in that power play. Um, then there was a bit of a rebuild from Chennai. Uh, Itapa and Raidu. Looks like they were in reasonable form. Um, the actually looked very good, to be fair, uh, until he was um, done by Baron Chakravarti, um, who is yeah, an exceptional T20 bowler, really. 
Uh, I know he's had a few problems with his fitness, uh, supposedly, but I think, um, you know, if you can bowl like that, it doesn't really matter if you're not an absolute kind of um, elite fielder or something like that. Um, he got the top stump level leg side by Jackson. Really sharp piece of work, actually, Sheldon Jackson. And then the innings kind of just imposed on itself. Um, Judeja and Dony were back together and they, you know, both players who, to be, I think it's fair to say, struggled quite a lot against elite spin. Um, they kind of saw off the spin, looked to attack the last few overs, which Dony did really well, got to his 50 or 38 balls. Um, I've been a bit critical of Dony for a few years, but to be fair to him, that was very good innings. However, Judeja just really did, um, <laughs> really did struggle continuously and ended up chewing up 28 balls with just 26 runs and, you know, Chennai posted a, an under par 131 really that Kolkata saw off pretty consistently. Yeah, and I mean, uh, nowadays I think there's a certain set pattern where, you know, if you're chasing in something in the 135-140 range, how to go about it. And Kolkata just did that. One, one, top, one top order batter who goes at 130 and then everybody around him bats at run a ball or so and you're home. That's exactly what they did. And they have a very strong batting lineup, really, KKR. And um, you have Sheldon Jackson coming in at number seven. So it's it's not something you can laugh about. Um, and you have Dreyras and Sunil Narayan, two strikers, somebody who's good at uh, striking spin and somebody who's really good at striking pace. So they can be floated up and down the order as and when required. So that's a very, very, very strong team as always. And Sunil Narayan, four over 15 runs. <laughs> no wicket taken, but that's, that's as good. That's as good as gold. So... I, I couldn't catch much of this uh, game. In fact, none of it because I was already uh, playing a game myself. The first practice game of the season for me here. So uh, I then saw the analysis. I was very surprised. Uh, I think probably Robin Udapa would probably feel a bit um, frustrated at you know getting a, such a nice start and not converting it. He usually does that. That's what he did in semi-finals and finals, if you remember, of the last uh, tournament as well, where Chennai went on to win. But I think MS Dhoni now free of all that responsibility, all that, you know, uh, I won't use the word headache for him ever, but all that, you know, things to think about. I think he's now going to express himself. I thought, personally, I thought he was uh, batting a bit lower, probably somebody like uh, Shivam Dube could have batted after him but it didn't it did really didn't matter in the larger scheme of things and Jadeja will probably find his feet as the tournament goes on probably today first time he's captaining the side so he had a few more things on his mind than normal maybe but as as you say rightly this pitch is still fresh so it can support bowlers uh, at least but because there are not many venues this time uh, it, it remains to be seen how it behaves as the tournament goes on by the way the Second day's play has begun where Mumbai Indians take on uh, Delhi Capitals. Capitals have chosen to field first and Mumbai Indians are 10 for no loss at the end of the first over. Just an update. Yeah. Yes. I read your article about Punjab Kings having the most balanced lineup and the, probably the best chance to try and win the tournament. Would you like to speak a bit more about that? Because I was going to ask you who's your favorite, but your article pretty much explains that. Would you like to go on and illustrate why you think Punjab Kings are the best? Uh, sure, I will do. Uh, just before I start, a bit of a disclaimer. I'm a, I'm a Punjab fan, so like, they're the team I do support in the IPL. But um, to, ba- <laughs> but to balance that out, I'm very, I've been very happy to criticise them when they've been useless for the last God knows how long. So, um, yeah, I think basically, I think Punjab have just approached their auction and therefore their team building in a very sensible way. Uh, they've got their analyst they're taking on for this year is Van Weston, who is um, very highly thought of in the UK. He, um, he's the analyst both for Leicester or Leicestershire and for um, Birmingham in the 100s and also for Bangor Tigers in the T10. 
A tends to prioritize this very aggressive, boundary-oriented mode of mode of T20. I think you can see that with Punjab. I mean, that top four they had of Darwan, uh, Agarwal, uh, Bairstow, and Livingston, when they're all available, is extremely strong. Uh, it might look a little bit left right-hander heavy, but Agarwal, Livingston, and Bairstow are all very good hitters of legspin as right-handers. Uh, so overall, I think that top four is pretty hard to match. Um, you know, along with Sharat Khan, who hasn't cut it in the IPL yet, but has a fantastic domestic record hitting spin. Plenty of good options. Um, for not sure, so number six slot. I mean, you have you know Raj Bauer, who was exceptional in that under 19s World Cup. Um, he looked like a, a man bowling to boys at times in that final against England. Um, especially that bounce through ball to get the wicket, which I think um really put the fear of God into the to the English batters. Um, but then you have also in that slot the option of Jitta Sharma, who went um scored over 200 in the side side Mishakati trophy recently. And then kind of good under-roast options by the Odeon Smith or Howell at seven. Uh, Benny Howell being a real domestic stall over in the UK. He bowls this very unusual type of almost baseball-like sort of medium pace. A lot of um, sort of floaters, knuckleballs and that kind of thing. And then, yeah, in their bowling, I think they look strong. Rahul Chahar is a very good leg spinner. If not, you know, not the best in India, but still very good. Um, Rabada, maybe been a little bit off form in T20 recently, but of course is just a generally elite bowler. Arshdeep uh, Singh is one of the best young Indian seamers. And then you've got an extra slot for someone like a dependable Sandeep Sharma or maybe kind of the height and pace of Ishan Perel, who I'm really excited about. Uh, Bowls 85 mile plus, hits the deck, seams it both ways. He pitches it up, he can swing it away from the right-hander quite prodigiously. And I think it's played a bit of India A cricket and looks very good. So overall, I just think they've got a rational side that Looks you no know, have a certain way it plays. It's an aggressive side that will play that way. Whereas I think some teams look a little bit maybe like they've got all good players in them, but they don't quite know what their strategy is. But you can predict basically nine players that are going to play pretty much for Punjab. And also kind of the structure of the team is very obvious from the squad they've compiled, which I don't think you can necessarily say about all the teams in this IPR. That, that's a well uh, well reasoned argument you put forward. But uh, what about the captaincy of Mayank Agarwal? We don't know much about Mayank Agarwal, the captain. We know about Mayank Agarwal, the opener, for sure. Um, do you think he'll also evolve as the tournament goes on? Because it requires a certain kind of thinking. This is not international cricket, but it still requires a certain kind of thinking to get your team through um, certain tough phases maybe in a game. So what are your thoughts? Do you think he'll uh, succeed there? Yeah, I think there's a good chance he will. I mean, there's obviously, like you say, we haven't seen much as a captain. Uh, my general impression, I think, kind of, um, is that most captains are very similar. You get some very good captains, like Dhoni, who gives you positive output, um, who you say, you know, Dhoni being captain or, you know, being on the field to advise Shadeja, that is, you know, a positive run impact for your team. You get some people who are very bad captains uh, and they negatively affect the team. And you get a lot of people who are perfectly adequate at it. Um, we maybe haven't seen enough of Agawal to, to know that he isn't a very bad or a very, very good captain. Um, but generally speaking, I think most Agawal seems like a kind of well-reasoned, pretty pretty stable guy generally. And with that kind of good backroom staff who will be feeding him information for matchups, etc., I think there's a very good chance he will be able to do these um, these key sort of bowling changes right. If he, um, you know, there's, there are intangible elements such as like, you know, to what extent you fire the team up? You know, there's obviously, a, you know, with you know, so Imran Khan for that 
you know, corner tigers in the 90s. Exactly. But those sort of things, they're very hard to quantify anyway. So it's hard to really talk about them in a, in a sense. Now, those are the things I was thinking of. More than the skills and more than, you know, sort of the analysis and those things, sort of pulling your players together at a crucial point in the game, which Dhoni could, Kohli did. You know, you're right. There are different styles of captaincy. I'm really looking forward to what Mayank Agarwal does. Shall we take it that for you, Punjab Kings have a good chance? Yeah, I think so. I mean, in this, in a kind of tournament like this, that's designed a bit like American sport, something that no one team can dominate for a period of time. That's the whole point of the auction. You're never going to have a side that feels like they've got a really, really extreme, extremely strong chance of winning. It's not like Premier League football where at the start of the season, Man City are probably two to one to win the league or whatever. Um, but I think Punjab have probably got themselves a situation where they are um, far better than 10 to 1 to win, which obviously would be the neutral odds. I think, you know, I, I'd give them probably a 1 in 4 chance of winning, which I think actually is a very good a very good amount when you've got 10 teams in that league, essentially. But I think I'd be very surprised if they don't make playoffs. And from there, of course, t- tournament cricket, you can lose a game. But um, yeah, I, I think they're the most likely team to win, but it's not, they're not kind of a nailed on winner like. Australia in the women's cricket, for instance. All right. Now, it's it's a long tournament and uh, I think there's plenty to look forward to. So, I myself am an RCB fan and therefore a cricket tragic. But there is some new leadership and maybe a different thought process. And, you know, let's see if uh, they are able to pull themselves through. Um, all right. I'm looking forward to a long Sunday of a lot of IPL. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's really wonderful what this tournament can bring and a lot of entertainment. So we're hoping for a fairly entertaining period of a couple of weeks as well to see. Now, if uh, we move on to the score, uh, we move on to the stories off the cricket field. So we have this uh, some and a news that's come out that Rob Key has actually um, confirmed his interest uh, to be the MD of uh, England cricket. Any thoughts on that? At least England men's uh, cricket. Any thoughts on that? Um, it's an interesting one. It's a little bit, le- a little bit left field. I think there. I wouldn't have necessarily seen Key as not a, an insult in any way, but I wouldn't have necessarily seen him as that kind of uh, being interested in that sort of thing. I think uh, when they interviewed him on TV yesterday, he said he basically would base his decision on how much golf he got to play, and I think that was only half a joke. Um, but um, I think generally speaking, mm-hmm. I mean, English domestic cricket in terms of management is an absolute snake pit at the moment. I mean, you've got the way they kind of manage it is quite appalling. There's quite, seems to be quite a, a strong disdain for <laughs> people who like cricket in England. Um, from the kind of management and at the top, you have um, Tom Harrison the, who runs the whole, the whole ship at the ECB who, you know, seems to be very adverse to having any form of accountability really. So I think it's one of those jobs where I think, I think Rob Key seems like a really nice guy. I think he talks sense about cricket. Um, it's questionable how much, impact you can make in a system that seems to be quite structurally broken, perhaps. Um, but there definitely needs to be change at the moment. I mean, some of England's decision-making at the moment does beg, um, beg a belief to some extent. And they seem to lean back on kind of um, a lot of status quo stuff, a lot of di- a lot of not doing a lot, and they're making one big statement move, like, you know, dropping forward in Anderson or what have you. Um, I think, yeah, I think Key could be a, a decent candidate for it. Um, but I think generally at the ECB, kind of the, there needs to be a change in which they, they censor accountability a lot more than they do at the moment. And that hopefully would lead to sort of better decision-making and just more transparency of what's actually happening when they pick their sides and they make certain decisions, etc. 
Look, I was also looking for somebody like Michael Vaughan or somebody who's held the leadership role previously with England to put his hat in the ring. I've not seen that. But as you say, it's, it comes out of the left field. But it remains to be seen whether he can bring those uh, things he le- he's learned from other sports or things that he's learned from watching and participating in England cricket for a long time. And uh, maybe England do need a reset. This didn't really feel like a reset. Reset, Dropping Brown and Anderson itself is not a reset for me. There are other things in that squad that needs to be cleared out. There are some thought processes that need to be worked out. So let's see. Let's see how uh, it goes. Sorry, yeah. Sorry. Apologies for interrupting. Um, yeah, just quickly on Michael Vaughan. He won't, he won't put his name forward because um, because of his role uh, and being named in the uh, Yorkshire Racism Report and kind of the and the um, what was perceived to be by a lot of people, including myself, a kind of lack of contrition or not really taking it particularly seriously, along with um, mm. his general kind of. Mm slightly um, Piers Morgan-esque appearance in social media, etc. I think he, I, I don't see him All right. being an acceptable option to a lot of Indian fans, if I'm, if I'm honest. He's alienated himself uh, too far from the establishment. Probably. Yes. All right. In another slightly upsetting news, Zubair Hamza, who's sort of uh, one of the middle-order tyros who's in and around the South African setup, has tested positive for a prohibited substance. Uh, under the ICC's anti-doping code. So he's been provisionally suspended. So the test was done on 17th January. And then uh, at least it looks like uh, Hamza is not really disputing the test. So he's going to fully cooperate with ICC. But it remains to be seen what sort of a sentence he gets, whether it will be suspended or whether he'll have to serve some time out of the game. Any thoughts on this? Yeah, it's obviously always very sad when you see these things. Um, You know, you like to give the player the benefit of the doubt if you can, in terms of you know maybe they didn't know they were they'd ingested it somehow or what have you. Uh, am I right in saying we haven't been told what this banned substance is yet? Is that correct? No, no, it hasn't. Uh, we we haven't been told, and I don't think we would be for a yeah. while until all of these things are confirmed and passed through. Only then we would hear. Yeah, so I mean, you're hoping it's a kind of Shane Warne slimming pill type thing rather than a you know a proper um, deliberate attempts to gain some advantage through the, the use of a, you know, um, some sort of proper um, substance that will enhance your performance quite considerably. So we have to wait for that, I suppose. But I mean, yeah, it's quite a sad news, obviously. I mean, he's a guy who you kind of want to root for a bit for whatever reason um, in terms of getting his game. Exactly. So hopefully, he, hopefully it all kind of resolves and maybe he has to have some sort of ban if he's Done it, um, done it sort of non-deliberately, but yeah, I'm really much hoping it's not a kind of organised cheating. It's more just a kind of misunderstanding or a lack of paying attention to what's put in his body or something like that. That's what I expect, frankly. I think it's uh, something uh, that slipped in unnoticed rather than something done deliberately or some recreational sort of a drug. But it remains to be seen because he, I think, I thought he was doing all right and. Um, he didn't really do uh, too well when it came to test matches, but he has a long-term future for South Africa. So we really hope he passes through this and uh, comes out on the other side a much more wiser person. Now, the last news, which is sort of long overdue, is that BCCI is finally um, well starting to get the wheels turning. They want to also host a women's IPL in 2023. Uh, it might not be that they would be the first uh, such tournament outside of WIPL, uh, sorry, WBBL and the 
the 100 where uh, even the women get to participate as well as the there's a flagship uh, tournament of t20 uh, for uh, women as well in england isn't there Jack? yeah so over in england we have the women's hundreds had one season um the hundred as a whole has been quite controversial in terms of the way it's structured and the way it isn't based around the county system, which is quite cherished by a lot of fans. Um, but most people, I think, even if they were quite sceptical of the whole idea, thought the women's tournament was a really, really good spectacle uh, and played at a really high standard. And it's definitely brought a lot of our young players on. So I think for India, having this women's IPL would be a really key thing. I mean, if you want to if you want to challenge Australia, you need to have a good domestic setup in which your young players actually play against the top internationals in the world. Um, Otherwise, they're kind of playing club cricket and it's hard to really ascertain how, you know, who is best out of your, say, 19, 20-year-olds. Whereas if they're facing, you know, if you have all, if you, if all your young spinners in a season, for instance, have to bowl to Sophie Devine and Lizelle Lee once, yeah, that's, that's separating the, the elite players from the just very good players quite effectively, I think. Absolutely. Now, and look at how competitive it has been. The Women's World Cup, where the last game decides the semi-finalist. So it's clearly more exciting. It's obviously more marketable as well. Right? So uh, for me, I've, I've, we've been vocal uh, exponents of uh, women's cricket and we've been asking for a women's IPL for well two years now. So it's about time, if not already a slightly behind time. Those were all the news we had to cover in this episode. So I would like to say thank you for choosing to do an episode with us. It was very enjoyable. It was a very enjoyable chat for me. Jack. Yeah, thank, thank you very much for having me, Ajay. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed coming in. So, uh, do you have anything you would like to plug about your work? Maybe where you're available on social media? Yeah, so I mean, I just essentially run the Twitter account and the blog. It's at cricket underscore pig on Twitter. The link to my blog's through that. Yeah, just kind of have a look. Feel uh, myself if you want any questions um, you know, or want to know maybe where I've been in another podcast, you can feel free to DM me, etc. Just talk about cricket even if you want. Yeah, so just kind of have a, have a look. I'll be doing quite a bit of coverage of the IPL. So if you're interested, that'd be great. Indeed. Also your blog where you write some very insightful articles. That's where I sort of read about your love for uh, Punjab Kings and decided to invite you. Um, looking forward to having you again on our show sometime in the future. And uh, thanks a lot. I, we wish all our uh, listeners a good day, wherever you're listening from. Thanks a lot, Jack. Bye-bye. Thank you. This is the Armchair Cricket Podcast.